We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Total Celebrity segment. And you know what? This story's a, an unbelievable story. Uh, this is not a typical career change. I kind of maybe did the same type of typical career change where I went from professional wrestler in the minor leagues to school teacher and then back to entrepreneur. And now I'm back in the entertainment business. However, my guess definitely didn't. After 10 years in the NFL, including a Super Bowl championship with the Green Bay Packers, former defensive lineman, now chaplain Darius Holland hung up his cleats to join the clergy. Uh, chaplain uh, Darius, thanks for stopping by, man. How are you? Oh, uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes, and so Chaplain uh, Darius Holland, tell us about your journey from the football field to the army. You know, I, I used to tell people that I, I was in the army first. Uh, my dad was Sergeant First Class Jesse Holland out of uh white sands missile range where he retired and i was like i'm never joining the army and you know um my escape was football and so i i got through football i got in my career and i realized that i had opportunities to meet with servicemen and it was very clear that i had a connection and a giftedness to actually minister to them and i just knew that that's the direction in which i needed to go and so i just i responded to that call and it has been a blessing ever since and that's, that, that, that blessing has got to be something very important, that call. And so when, you're, when life after football hits you, you know, that's the hardest thing in the world. It's a story that so, – and I'm sure you help other NFL athletes at least have conversations with them or other professional athletes, life after football and figuring it out. Was that what you were figuring out from the beginning, that you were going to move this direction, or was it kind of a, a process once you retired? You know, I, I learned very early on that football was not something that I could depend upon uh, for life. Um, it was very clear at the Super Bowl that reaching that pinnacle, I knew uh, that was not that was not the the chief end of my life. Uh, so that led me on the journey, but it wasn't sufficient. And so I think what happened is through the course of doing that, I started to be some soul searching, asking some difficult questions and found faith in the journey. And then through that process, I was able to actually uh, become who I am today. And I think that that's, that's so important. So how quickly out of the NFL did you become a chaplain? Uh, it took a long time, actually. I went back to, you know, University of Colorado and finished my degree. Uh, and then I went into the uh, master's program for uh, divinity. Um, and that's what, you know, most will get and just to pastor it. And so I took that journey. I graduated in 2015. And so I'd been pastoring, but I needed that, that, that education to grow in that area. And then someone says, man, you'd be really good <laughs> at chaplaincy. And I was like, that does not make sense. I, I just knew, I was like, that is not a good idea. Um, and I just, I just knew, actually my wife actually knew before I did, and she just responded and she goes, no, that's the career. That's what you need to be doing. And so for that, it's been, um, I'm grateful to her for identifying that. And it's been, like I said, it's been a blessing. It's important to have someone behind you for you, wanting, believing you. That's when you have a significant other that's able to do that for you, it changes who you are. It changes and then gives you more and more of the understanding of the steps where you need to go next. And I'm sure you give her a shout out, I'm sure, of what she's done for you. The, the support. Absolutely. 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 Right. Mom's so the best. You, 
What do you think this, there's similarities between your two careers, the NFL and now Chaplin? Is there similarities? Oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, being on a team, you know, being on a team, you're going to actually have the support of the people to your left or to your right. And you're also going to rib each other, give each other a hard time. Uh, but in the course of all that, you also, you know, have a mission that you have to accomplish. You know, in, in sports, it's winning, you know, winning games and winning championships. But in the military, it's winning wars. And so it's really cool to be a part of uh, a greater mission like that and know that I'm going to be able to inform those individuals to my left and right and help them get through the good times and the bad times. And so I, I'm really grateful to be a part of the military. Uh, and the, the team, team aspect, I think that's what helps playing the NFL. I think it helps in life if you can create a team. If you're great and understanding team atmosphere, it's the most important thing because we have that individual mindset that we're not going to work with others. We're not going to do their things. We're never going to accomplish things as leaders. And that's what a leader brings is the ability to bring a team together. And you did it on the football yeah. field. And now you're doing it with the U.S. Army. And I think it's phenomenal for sure. How does spirituality fit into the overall health and performance of soldiers? Because that's the thing. You, you, you wanted to be a pastor. You wanted to do all these things. But you never saw the fit it was going to be in the U.S. Army. And then you said, holy cow, this is what, where God's calling me to and do these different things. How does that fit? Oh, man. It's, you know, I, I always tell people that when it comes to this particular area, um, I always describe it to that that place of going to, you know, Kansas City Chiefs and watching them play in the game. You know, you're like sitting there and listening to them sing that national anthem. And every single time it gets me and the home of the Chiefs. Right. Yeah. Well, that that moment is that moment where the players kind of go, oh, it's time to play. It's time to get after it. And just having that 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 boost is the spiritual work inside of, you, you know, in a in a in a secular kind of way and so to, to what i try to do for them is i help them cultivate that for their lives so they can deal with the good times or the bad times and actually be able to navigate that by having spiritual fitness and that's what i coach them to do and coaching them about that spiritual fitness th this is the process that they see and respect you because of you and what you've been able to do in your career and you have those conversations with them and then they and you tell them the trials the tribulations, the different challenges you had to deal with in the NFL, in your college career, wherever in life, and then explain that to them. Then they see where that aspect of faith comes in to help people move forward for success, especially in a challenge Thanks. of being in the U.S. Army and understanding the, that, right? Excellent. That's well said. Um, that's exactly what you want. You want to use your experiences, your education, to guide them in a way that's healthy so that they can actually deal with difficult moments or, or, or celebrations in a healthy way. All right. What advice would you give to someone thinking about using their skills in the army? Oh man, there's so many things that you could do in the army. Um, so many times we think about the war fighting function and we don't realize that there's so many other jobs, whether it's being a part of media or, working in the kitchen or working as a mechanic or a clergy, you have a role that you can play in the military. And so I continue to encourage people to actually look and see where they can fit in the military. You can do that by just going on to GoArmy.com and you'll find so many different opportunities there. And what makes it like you talked about being a chaplain and why did you choose the U.S. Army over other military? Because you could have gone and been chaplain in other military. 
Yeah. The only difference is, is that my dad would be upset. <laughs> there was okay, my dad, my dad, my dad, my dad graduated from the Naval Academy and went to, was in the Navy. For yeah. He passed away three years ago, but he was, uh, you know, uh, number two in the Naval Academy. Uh, brilliant man, Navy. All, I'm all Navy all day long, and I understand that rivalry. When you Army plays Navy, I'm always rooting for Navy. And I can't believe what's happening. Army's winning now, and you know after Navy, yeah. so many wins. Uh, so that, I, I hear what you're saying. You chose the Air Force. You chose Navy. No, it's the U.S. Army all the way. One hundred. One hundred. That's <laughs> why we say go Army, beat Navy. No, 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 no. <laughs> No, no, come on. I'll have to sing Anchors Away. And no, I don't want to scare up my listeners and viewers here with Anchors Away. But thank you for your service. Again, what you bring, and now you're bringing that spiritual component to everyone. And again, the website for people who want to learn more about the U.S. Army is go where? Where can they go? GoArmy.com. All right. Is there a place go you, Army.com. You, people can follow you on social media and your journey and where you're going? You know, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Instagram. You're more than welcome to uh, search for me there. And uh, if you do, I will, I'll definitely uh, like and subscribe as well. Uh, I'm going to connect with you on LinkedIn for sure. It was a great conversation. Best of luck to you. Great. Thank you for your service in both ways. And I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for your support. You're welcome. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mike Velarde Show, and I'm excited to welcome the program Mike Velarde. Mike, what's going on, man? How are you? Great, Neil. How are you? Good, good. You have a really interesting guest today, so as you always are bringing these interesting guests to the table, who's our guest today? Uh, Jimmy Watson, former Navy SEAL. Jimmy, welcome to the Mike Velarde Show. We're great. We're, we're very happy to have you. Mike, it's great seeing you. Uh, it's an honor to be on your, your show. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Uh, what, let, let's start by you giving us your background. I mean, you have a very interesting background. Sorry about that, the, uh, the phone there. Um, tell us about yourself. Well, you know, I started out in the Marine Corps. Um, I, I, I always wanted to be a Navy SEAL from the time I was a very, very small kid. My aunt came up to me at a, at a reunion, at a Watson reunion, and she said, son, what do you want to be when you grow up, little Jimmy? And I said, a Navy SEAL. Look, I don't know where I got the Navy SEAL story. I don't know where I, you know, Charlie Sheen wasn't out blowing coke at the time. And so, you know, I just basically was like, uh, I want to be a Navy SEAL. Well, uh, they were like, okay. Well, I knew, though, um, I didn't have the aptitude and I didn't have the, um, the physical ability. Because, you know, my parents went to my coach and they were like, look, um, you know, play little Jimmy in a football game just one time on the C-string. And he said, ma'am, I would get fired if I played your son in the football game. And so I knew I had a lot of growing up to do, but I had a heart of a lion, you see. Uh, and so basically went to the Marine Corps instead at 17 years old, dropped out of school when I was 14, went to the Marines, uh, eventually went to Blackwater for four years, got wounded there, uh, did a lot of work in Blackwater and contracting uh, around the world. Uh, and eventually uh, I pursued my dream and became a Navy SEAL at the age of uh, 26. Wow. Thank you for your service again. Is that pretty late to, to, to go after and becoming a Navy SEAL 26? Yeah, it really is. It really is. It's kind of it's kind of hard to imagine this. And I look back and I go, man, I wasn't old. You know, now I'm old at 41. But, but when you're going through Navy SEAL training, uh, 27 or 26, 27 years old is considered very old there. They're like, you're like the old man uh, in the process. And it just, you know, the young guys, brother, 
the young guys, they spring out of bed, right? But there's nothing, there's nothing that can imitate real world experience. I already had a ton of combat experience. In fact, the buds instructors there actually uh, knew me from Blackwater. It doesn't mean I had a, um, an, an easier chance going through, but they knew me. And uh, so that was kind of a, a, a good thing going through that process. But yes, 26, 27 is, is um, you're hurt. You're, you're a lot, you're a lot more sore, but you got the experience, you know, that they desperately need. Wow. All right. Now tell you when you, when you left the seals, I mean, you were, you were in the mid East, you had a lot of work in the mid East, but we, what we really want to hear about is John McAfee. You were his personal bodyguard for seven years. Tell us well, about him. And what do yeah, you think happened with him? Do you think he really committed suicide? Look, no, there's no way. He was the, um, he was the hardest Irish bastard from an alcoholic dad I've ever seen in my life. He was tough as nails. That's not in his communication. Suicide is just not him. Look, I went to federal penitentiary uh, in, uh, in regards to this case as well, okay? He went to like a Spanish dungeon, okay? Two things I know about the federal penitentiary is that you don't kill yourself when you find out that you're about to leave the dungeon. Right. Okay. Right. 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 Now, right. In number, yeah. In number two, it's very, very easy to have somebody killed or to get killed in prison. And I was uh, pretty shocked to find that out there. Uh, but if you're a snitch or child molester, uh, you will get stabbed up as you leave the, the cell into the yard in a Texas federal penitentiary. For sure. So this so were you surprised when you heard he died when he got killed? Uh, I I was um, at one of the lowest points in my life, and I had dealt with a lot of pain. I have dealt with a lot of grief from deaths of my little brother, and then a lot of other things in the SEAL teams. Just lost another an incredible comrade. Heard about it today before I got on the radio show. Um, uh, SEAL there in Hawaii named Irby, a uh, wonderful guy. So I so I had processed all this death and, and all these things. I just didn't have it in me to process and grieve this. I still haven't grieved his death if he is, in fact, um, dead. But, but if he is dead, okay, uh, if he is dead, he was murdered. You, you would not hang yourself, fellas. Okay. You would not hang yourself if you found out that you – we're about to be transferred to America. He's a sensationalist. He's all about the media, okay? Uh, and, and, and that's what he lived for. And he always won, you know? In every single situation I ever saw with McAfee, doing negotiations for him, being with him, being the CEO and president eventually of his company, I, I always noticed one thing. He was always right. Even when he said he had dirt on Hillary Clinton, you know, all this stuff. When he said he didn't pay taxes for six years, I go, nobody would admit that. Nobody would say that on national, but he was dead serious. And they eventually uh, strung him for that. That was the initial charge. All right. So tell us how you met him. Tell us what it was like to work his detail. Tell us about, about him, his personality. And obviously it must have been true. He did get dirt on everybody. I mean, he was able to, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, you could load spyware into the into all the I, I mean, the, the rumor was that he loaded spyware into the government computers and he got all the information about everybody and everything. Well, that's what he did for Belize. OK, 
you know, uh, he's a mastery. He's a master at trickery and in, in the art of it. And, and I'll tell you, uh, and um, he basically donated a bunch of uh, software. Uh, well, he donated a bunch of computers with the software already on it. Like you're talking about the spyware, the yeah. keyboard memorization uh, to the Belize government when he was there. And they were like, oh, man, this guy's awesome. And we're going to try to extort him later. They did try to extort him. And that's that's hence the the murder allegations and then him running away. But he gave them these computers with this keystroke memorization on there. And so and so they thought that he was donating and just a silly white man in, in Belize retiring forever. He was actually collecting a ton of information on him because he knew that they would eventually exploit him for, for all these things. You see what I'm saying? That's yeah. that's how smart he was. Wow. It's, you it's, asked me how I met him. Yeah. 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 The story you told off air is crazy. And how you were negotiating with somebody that, that powerful in a way, and you were in the wrong mind. You, at least in certain ways, that's an unbelievable story to bring up because I, that's Jimmy, that's something that people have in the negotiation process, being even that you were at that point in your life where you needed the money and you went ahead and spoke to them that way and got what you wanted. Yeah, you know, Max T was all all about, you know, you got to have balls in this world. I don't know how to say it any other way. You know, I try to spell out my cu my cuss words now because I, I got a sailor's mouth. But here's the deal. Um, you know, I got out of the Navy SEALs. I was at the apex of my career in the Navy SEALs as a sniper and team leader. Um, I get a traumatic brain injury. It happens. Guys are not going to go there and do a 20, 25-year stint and have a great dandy old time. You're diving 26 weeks out of the years. You're diving five Hour, you know, four hours a night, uh, six days a week on a drag or larva. They call it the widow maker. It's like breathing in a hot air bag in a loop system, you know, and, and, and it just pisses you off. And so, you know, so you're always under the threat of a diving accident or, or, or a, an array of different things, including the high risk behavior afterwards, right? Uh, when you go out and party with the team. So, um, I was on a dive, I had a traumatic brain injury, uh, and so I go from the apex of my career to now I'm getting processed out basically, right? Uh, and it was it was very hard for me to deal with after 17 years of uh, combined service, 14, 12, 14 combat deployments. Now, what am I going to do? I get out. I'm pretty lost. Um, I had um, uh, I, I was slipping into severe depression. Didn't know what I was going to do because uh, because like you you fellas know you know you plan out something in your life. And it rarely goes the way you want it, but it always ends okay. In, in, in when you trust in God, when, when you trust in Yahweh, that's what I believe. Here's the deal, fellas. I get out. Uh, my boy calls me. His name is Taylor. I'll, I'll just say his name, Kavanaugh, because he's in the French Foreign Legion now. But if if you're if you're a seal listening to this channel, I'm sure you are. You know his. Uh, you know him when I when I say how he's how he used to talk. He goes, "Hey, bro, Jimmy, pick up your phone." I'm like. Hey, what's up, Cab? What do you want, man? You know, I'm trying to behave these days. Come on, man, leave me alone. You know, he's one of those friends. And he's like, no, bro, for real. He goes, I got a, I got you a gig uh, guarded uh, John McPhee. I said, who the heck is John McPhee? He goes, look at your computer, you know? And I said, what do you mean look at my computer? He's like, you know, McPhee Enterprise. I said, okay. So I so I, I realized who it is. He goes, listen, bro, he's going to call you in, in, in like two weeks. Just be ready. Be, be on standby to leave. He's going to pay a lot of money. I say, okay. Uh, all of a sudden, I get a call randomly from John McPhee. It's this really scratchy voice. He's like, where are you at, son? 
And I'm like, I'm, I'm in California. Where are you at? Like, I don't even know this guy, you know? He's like, look, I need you here right now today. I said, well, that, that costs money, sir. You know, it, cause I was on a shoestring budget with my wife at the time. Didn't know where I was going to go. He goes, I, I need you here tonight. I said, that costs money. And, and he goes, how much do you charge? I said, 200, uh, I said 500 to a thousand a day, sir. Uh, depending, depending on the threat. And John McAfee spewed out his cough. He probably spit out a cigarette. And he goes, what? He goes, I only charge my Green Berets. To, you know, they, they only charge me 250 a day. And, and I don't know what got into me, you know, and I don't know why I said this, because I would have done it for $15, fellas. No joke. I would have done it for free just to get out of the house and get, get a little validation going on. <laughs> and and they, he said, he spewed his drink out. And, um, and I said, it's your life, sir. It's your life. And he, and he just paused. And he says, okay, but I need you here tonight. I need you here right now. And so I, I believe looking back that that was one of the first negotiations he ever lost. And it, it wasn't, I, it happened really quick, but I was keen on the fact that he was paranoid and it was his life in danger. I wasn't manipulating the situation, but you got to know your value. And trust me, 500 to to $1,000 a day guarding John McPhee. It, it it wasn't enough. Yeah, it was a very very difficult job. Okay, so that's where the thing about hiring a bodyguard is. You know, the it's a process because you're trained. You're like the bodyguard, like in the, the movie The Bodyguard, right? You'll have you'll, you're you're armed, right? You're making yep. sure that you're checking every detail where he's going, looking at the rest of the security team, handling all those different things. And you said it was even more challenging than you even thought. Explain that kind of stuff you had to do. Well, you know, you know, they they pick me up in the, in these black trucks, no big deal, whatever, at the airport, trying to scare me, trying to intimidate me. I don't care about all that. You know, I've done so much work in the past. I had like thirteen, maybe twelve to fourteen combat deployments, depending on how you count them. Okay, and so they count the months. So I get to the airport. A guy picks me up. I can tell when someone's carrying. You know what I mean? When you've been in this business long enough, you tell they're all carrying. Uh, they tell me to get in the car. I say, okay, I'll play this game. You know, you know, they didn't try to blindfold me or nothing, but they were dead silent. So I, I, I was dead silent. They pull up to this massive mansion in Lexington, Tennessee. These dogs are in, in this, in this yard, these big metal gates and these huge vicious dogs like Cujo, you know, and they're, they're, they're chomping at the bit to, to get out of the gate. Uh, they invite me in. There's bullet holes in the wall. There's smoke everywhere. It's like a casino in there. You know, they got guys all his guards were doing crypto trading on computers everywhere. I walk in, there's smoke everywhere. Uh, they say, just stand right here and wait right here. The dogs are now pounding against the glass door now mm. to try to get in the house. Now they were trying to get me outside and they're like, don't worry. They, they'll, they'll get used to you. I'm like, man, this ain't worth it. I don't think, man. I don't know. Cause I'm, I'm like half in half out. I don't know this guy. I try not to look up any information. I don't want to judge anybody. So I didn't try to Google his name or anything like that. Going to the airport. Well, I did I did Google something and it said he was a billionaire, but he said he only had four million dollars. And he later told me he just said that so people stopped suing him because he got sued so much. He had all kinds of tactics for not getting sued or not answering at least. So he comes out, he's got a he's got some kind of submachine gun strapped to his chest. He's got a 1911 on his side. Uh, he comes out with sunglasses on. He's got bullet holes all around his um, 
room. You know, like waking him up was like when the, the generals of Hitler tried to wake up Hitler for the Russian invasion. You know, like it just doesn't work like that. You know, he's a he was very uh, paranoid man. And so he comes out and he's tapping his foot and he's looking at me with a burnt cigarette. He always had a lit cigarette in his mouth. And um, uh, he said, let the dogs in. And I said, hey, sir, I think your dogs are going to attack me. You know, he says, they won't bite you. They won't bite you. And so they go let the dogs in. And what do they do? They bite me. They literally run right at me. And I put my arm up like this. And Cujo, one, grabs me by the arm like this. They yank him off. I'm bleeding now. Now I'm going, man, I don't I don't know if I want to be here anymore. So he calls me outside, though, and I'll never forget our first conversation, the first really words he said to me. He called me way outside, way from the house. He's real paranoid of everybody. And keep in mind, he was paranoid that his bodyguards were uh, out to kill him or, oh, or, or plotting on him. So he, he calls me out there. He looks me dead in the eyes with his crystal blue eyes. Now takes off the sunglasses. And he said, son, he said, who is the most feared man on the battlefield? And I, I'm going, I have no freaking clue, man. I don't, you know what I'm saying? But I'm like, sir, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. He's like, most feared man on the battlefield is the oldest. And I just stared at him in his crystal blue eyes. And when he said that to me, that close to my face, chills came across my body. It was hard to phase me back in the day. You know, they called me the text tornado in the seals. Like, it's hard to phase me, right? But, but that sent chills down my body because I know when a man is dead serious. And he was absolutely dead serious with me when he said, the oldest man. He was basically saying, do not F with me. Don't mess with me. Because you'll get it because I have survived through hell and back. And that's what he was telling me without telling me. And so we got along really well after that because I always, after that point, took him at his word in dead serious, no matter how ludicrous oh it sounds, because he's always playing tricks. Well, I mean, so Mike, this is just an amazing story. I'm waiting. Why is this not a Netflix movie, right? Just the story of him and as a bodyguard. What you deal with or something, and this is like real. You see these movies, Mike, not real life. Listen, <laughs> listen. They they just released a Netflix documentary. I'm very disappointed. They they avoided me like the plague for some reason. It's because they had some hate with me because I fired some of those guys in there. None of those guys in there. None of them were with. Are you Max part Fieber. of the documentary? Huh? Are you part of some of the documentary? No, I'm not part of the documentary. I was on house arrest at the time. Oh. And uh, but okay. they never called me. And let me tell you, that's not the real story. People want to know the truth. I know every single dark secret. And that's not to try to publicize myself. But it's just I, I know some very interesting things because a man, a man uh, cannot go that long in life and hold these deep secrets and not tell someone he didn't trust Janice like you would think. He's not the normal type of person you would think that trust your wife, you know, trust people he had no trust but eventually he took me in like a right uh, like a like a a son and when he would drink heavy he would sit me down sometimes he would hold my hand like this like a father mm. and say listen i i have to tell you something and he would tell me some pretty deep stuff man what would you like to share on the show today well you know a lot of people think um and i would only share this now that i believe that he's probably passed but but um, 
a lot of people think that his dad committed suicide. You know, that uh, that's what you hear in the news and stuff is and 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 uh, but but it's important to realize that, you know, John McAfee's dad was Irish drunk and would beat him senseless. And he would beat his mom senseless, actually put her in the hospital. John McAfee was taught by his grandpa, a more loving guy, uh, to use a, a rifle, a 22 rifle. And he would take him out in the woods and he would teach him how to shoot and he would teach him gun safety. He would teach him how to cross a fence really, really the proper way with a gun to not get hurt. He taught him all this safety. And finally, when he realized John McAfee was old enough to handle this rifle, uh, he allowed John McAfee to have it as a gift. John McAfee put it away in his room. His dad continued to beat him and his mom uh, ruthlessly. One time he made John McAfee put his arm out on the table uh, and then he hit it with a billy club and it broke it in half. The whole time the yeah, the whole time the neighbors can hear this. And keep in mind, John McAfee's telling me this story shaking and crying. Okay. A man doesn't do that unless he's dead serious with you. Right. Um, and he said at me, staring at me, and said this. And then he said, you know, his, um, he says, and then uh, he put my mom in the hospital. He said, and, and after that, I went up to my dad and I said, if you, if you touch my mom again, if you touch mom again, I'm going to kill you. Uh -huh. And and it is dad beating for that. And then not, not long after uh, he, uh, he beat his mom again. His mom went to the hospital and, and I think you're going to begin to see the psychology of John McAfee and where a lot of his hurt was coming from and, and distrust with people, human beings in general. So he put the, his mom in the hospital. Um, John McAfee's a man of his word. John McAfee had a no bluff policy. I wrote down his 10 main rules somewhere around here. But, but one of his rules was he, no bluff. He never bluffed. No bluff policy, Jimmy. He, he taught me. Taught me a lot. So he... So he went back in the in the back room, got his 22. His dad was shaving in the mirror with a straight razor like this, real slow. I mean, this is like back in, what, the 40s, early 50s, maybe, shaving like this with a razor in a mirror. And he came up behind him and, and uh, aimed at him, just like his grandpa uh, told him, uh, taught him. And his dad looked at him in the mirror and said, what are you going to do with that, boy? And then he turned. And as he turned, John McAfee pulled the trigger. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, very, very similar, uh, if you remember, to Belize, right? I'm not trying to connect the two, but I'm just trying mm -hmm. to say, talk about this mentality. Uh, John McAfee dropped the gun and ran outside and ran to his neighbor and said, I just killed my dad. I just killed my dad. I just killed my dad in shambles. He's just a little boy. The neighbor said, sit down on the curb. Neighbor ran in there. Keep in mind, these neighbors are hearing the beatings going on all the time. You know, they know what kind of dad John McAfee's dad was. They run in there. And, um, and I think I've only told this story maybe once. But the, the neighbor runs in there for a while. After a long time, comes out and he grabs John McAfee. And he looks him in the face. And he said, son, you did not kill your dad. He goes, no, I killed him. I killed him. He says, I'm telling you right now for the rest of your life, for the rest of your life, you did not kill your dad. Your dad committed suicide. So I can only assume that the neighbor went in there arranged the gun, did something. They called the police. The tragic thing of this story, right, is that his mom, you would think would be, you would think would be grateful or thankful. His mom disowned him after that. Right. So, so you can imagine the <laughs> betrayal 
that he felt for for Absolutely. sticking up for her. I mean, so it's amazing, and people could catch this Netflix documentary. But is there anything else? So the things that were not covered in the Netflix Netflix documentary, like you're telling us a lot of backstories. What is your goal by coming out and doing interviews like this? What are you looking to do to try to? Hey, look, yeah, my 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 goal, my goal, man, is is to give honor where honors due. And my and my honor now comes from Jesus Christ. Look. I was saved at Operation Restore Warrior. I'm now the COO of Operation Restore Warrior, going on a speaking campaign uh, to to raise awareness, raise funds for Operation Restore Warrior. You know, because I was at the end of my rope after the McAfee thing, after the seals, after Nisar Square in Blackwater, being the team leader of that terrible event. You know, being responsible for a lot of things. Um, I, I I was at the end of my rope. I went to Operation Restore Warrior, and I didn't believe that God was with me, didn't believe it was possible to get changed. You know, all this stuff seemed ludicrous to me. Um, I, I walked down a little dirt road. I had a, uh, an ankle bracelet on the size of R2-D2 that talks to you. Uh, they released me from house arrest for three days. I went there. I didn't believe anything they were saying. Uh, but I walked outside and I said, "If uh, God, if you're real in my life, if you're real in my life, then show up. Then, then if, 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 if I'm if uh, I'm even worthy to be saved, this wretched man. And the next day, Jesus showed up, said I would be a lighthouse unto his people, and uh, shoulder got healed. Uh, and, and then I left there another person. And so my mission now is to raise awareness for Operation Restore War for our veterans, because our veterans need help. Look, 128,000 veterans have died, okay, since the time I joined in 1999. Wow. Five, to, to compare that, 5,000-something have died uh, as soldiers um, active duty, 130,000 almost have died in, in since 1999 when I joined. Wow. Okay. All right. So, and is there a place we can follow you and find information on your worst, best place to go? Yeah, absolutely. The, the first place I would, I would suggest, uh, for donations and stuff like that for Operation Restore Warrior is operationrestorewarrior.org. Uh, the second place, uh, is, um, at Mighty Warrior. Uh, 2022. And that's on TikTok. I really appreciate you allowing me to plug that in on your show. Uh, but yeah, at Mighty yeah. And, you, and yeah, because really we weren't talking that. serious politics that we ban on YouTube, this will be on my YouTube channel as well. I could get this one up YouTube channel, Mike. Only right. certain ones could go on my YouTube channel. Not, not ones yeah. that involve any of the, the controversy. Yeah. Anything you plug, that's for sure. Are you on LinkedIn? I'll definitely connect with you on LinkedIn as well with your mission and what you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, at Matty Warrior 2022 on TikTok. Um, another thing I want to say is, you know, there are some awesome companies uh, collaborating and getting behind Operation Restore Warrior. Uh, GladiatorSolutions.com uh, is, is definitely partnering and getting on board with this. They are helping people around the world with body armor solutions in our nation, and it's protective and defensive gear, and that's pretty amazing. But I have a lot to, to um, you know, God has allowed me to be part of uh, some real world significant events through my life. And obviously, um, the McAfee thing. And, and part of my goal is, is talking about my experiences uh, to help others, inspire others, and give them hope the same hope that I received from Jesus. You're, well, fantastic mission. Think about writing your own book, especially the stories. People check out that Netflix documentary. I had no idea who John McAfee was. I was just like you. Yeah. Right? And you answer, I didn't know who he was. 
Mike Velarde just texted me, Bruce, we're interviewing. I said, okay, <laughs> let's go. And he goes, I'm the only man that can handle that, right, Mike? The media giant can interview anyone in five minutes. Put me <laughs> on the air, let me go, and I will roll. MikeVelardeBooks.com, WinningTaxSolutions.com, and the MikeVelardeShow.com. Wow. Appreciate both of you guys. Great show and uh, great information. Appreciate it, guys. Absolutely. Honored. My All honor. Right. Thank Take you. Take care. All Thank right. You. All right. That was the Mike Velarde Show, guys. Take care. We're back to Neil Haley's show here on the Total Celebrity segment, and I'm excited to welcome to the program New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, and executive director of the Flow Research Collective, Stephen Kotler. Stephen, thanks for stopping by. We're going to talk about your newest, latest book, The Devil's Dictionary. How are you, Stephen? I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. You know, when I start thinking about the, the title of the book, how did you come up with that? That's a pretty catchy title to talk about, and it gets people really thinking right off the bat. It, uh, it came out of thinking about two things. It came out of this idea I had for a very long time ago about a dictionary where every entry in the dictionary actually turned into a thing in the real world. But that was the original core idea. Um, but in, in, the, in the book's got an environmental theme and, you know, an environment in the environment, one of the fastest drivers of species extinction is exotic species. New species show up, they overrun the ecosystem, they kill everything. Big problem. So the Devil's Dictionary, the idea, the or, origin was what if you had a machine, in this case, an AI, that could create life from scratch, that could create exotic species out oh, of wow. nowhere. And we've got AIs that are doing sort of, that are creating life from scratch already at the virus level and the bacteria level. So I stepped it up a, a couple generations and, and made it a little scary. You definitely did. And you like to connect your background to your, your writing, right? In a lot of ways of how you write. Yeah, I, I, I tried not to early in my career and I couldn't create realistic characters at all. So I discovered I had to like write a little closer to myself to, to make them work. And for people to understand more of your background and how it relates to your writing, kind of explain that to us. I started out as a journalist and my core interest was always those moments in time when the impossible became possible, like things that we didn't believe could happen. And this was what I covered. I covered it in science and technology and art and religion and sport and, and things like that. So, you know, when world's records were broken, I like to be there when we took science fiction ideas and turned them into science fact technology, right? They did the impossible of like making the future right. real. I, you know, I covered that. So that was at the center of, of my career. So I've written six books on technology uh, and sort of six books on human performance, which is tends to be when the impossible becomes possible, we see people harnessing new technology and we see people extending human performance. So that's essentially been my career. And you see the extension of life too, as another people now biohacking. Stuff. That's, that's that's intriguing. Yeah, my next so my next book is on peak performance aging, and while it's not at the core of the topic, right? I'm doing a lot. I've been covering longevity technology for a while, and wow, you know okay. what's going on is amazing. Yeah. So Dave Asbury, you like looking at his stuff and stuff when you took. Uh, I know Dave. Uh, uh, we we do very different things, um, and we have very different approaches to how to how we look at this stuff. Um, my stuff is really heavily neuroscience based. Um, and that's sort of what I do. Instead of experimental, in instead of experimental, you're more near. No, I, so the, I, what I like to do is I like to figure out if something works for me or for other people. And then I 
that, but personality doesn't scale. If it works for me, it's pretty much a guarantee. It's not going to work for you. Um, what I like to do is if something is really interesting at the Flow Research Collective, I work with a giant international team of almost 100 psychologists and neuroscientists. Oh, wow. And so we will take ideas that we think are, are, are true and then we'll bang on them for a really long time. And we do this in conjunction with scientists at UCLA and USC and Bureau oh, wow. College London and all over the world. So it's a much more rigorous and probably academic approach that, than Dave takes. Um, he does a lot more sort of self-experimentation. And if it works for Dave, he thinks- It should work for everyone else. And that's not always the case. Well, yeah. I, you know, in, in my research, and we have a motto at the Flow Research Collective, which is personality doesn't scale, biology scales. You want it, personality is very squishy. It's very subjective. Right. It gets set up by genetics and early childhood experience. And there's a lot of stuff like your risk tolerance, for example, gets established really early in life. You can change it, but it's slow and exactly. it takes like a decade, right? And if you're really risk phobic, I want to train you very differently than if you're an action sport athlete and are really risk friendly, right? And that's radically different. And that's set up by genetics and early childhood experience. That's personality. Personality isn't going to scale, right? But if you get one level deeper down to the neurobiology, that evolution shaped all of us to share, it tends to work for everyone. So and what are you so, seeing in this whole biohacking thing, in your opinion? A lot of people aren't, but people are. They're really seeing that they want longevity is an important thing. By the way, don't get me wrong. I avail myself of stem cell injections, peptides. I'm not saying that I don't do some of the biohacking stuff myself and I've played with that. I'm interested in learning more about that. You can't oh. find that. You gotta. You can't. You find that in average day, everyday place. And people have exposed me to this, and I'm like, okay, I'm interested more. I want to see how you can reverse aging. You know, a year every year in different ways. Well, I can give you a list of books to start with, and I can places to turn for sure. And I've got a book coming out in February. Okay, so you're coming back on the show in February, right? And we're gonna have Perfect. to figure out. We're gonna have to figure Love out to do it. A, 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 a series of interviews on that book, and not giving it away. But hyping it up because man, oh man, that's the intriguing part. But we'll go back to this. It's interesting to hear your background when you talk about technology. And I think this book makes it so fun and interesting is the fact that could you imagine, you're right, having a machine that could just literally bring back anything. It's almost in a, in a way like Jurassic World in a way, right? Well, they're doing that. So there's something called the Pleistocene Restoration Project in Russia, where they're trying to bring back the woolly mammoth. And there's a lot of environmental reasons for it. The woolly mammoth was the keystone predator of the Russian steppe, the used grasslands that can serve, that hold a lot of the carbon. So there's all this carbon. The grasslands are, are, are rotting away because they're not properly right. manicured. And if you can bring back the top animal in the ecosystem, it's really, this is like, when they put buffalo and wolves back in Yos Yosemite or Yellowstone and it, you know, suddenly the ecosystems were functioning again, this is the same thing, but with crazy genetics and this, a lot of people have been working on it for a while. Um, are they going to do it? I, I, you know, that I can't answer, but like they're, they're really serious about it. And there's a lot of money and a lot of brilliant people working on it. So in the latest Jurassic movie that could happen where they're basically bringing back dinosaurs. It could happen. It's so, a, this is outside my lane, so I'm not an expert here. I know okay. a little bit more than... But it's than kind my, of feeding into what your book is in a way. It does feed. It absolutely feeds into my, my book. But on this particular topic, on the Pleistocene Restoration Project, not, but there seem to be some weird problems with like getting a pure DNA sample that actually has all the information they need to bring it back. 
those kinds of questions. So like what seems wonky is remember Jurassic Park, the mosquito and the amber. Yeah. Right. And that's where they got the DNA. So it turns out that that's true, but it turns out the DNA that's there isn't exactly sort of, it's not working exactly according to plan. So there's issues with some of the stuff that we saw in the movies, but they're definitely moving forward with it. And yeah, it does. I, I just got curious about, um, I mean, new forms of life are getting really, really interesting. And by the way, it's not just like new forms of life at a like punk rock subculture. We're seeing human animal hybrids already. People are trying to create cat size yeah. in human beings or they're- Are you for that? Are you liking that or not as an animal rights advocate? So the mixing of genetics, I think is interesting because what, so here's what's interesting to me. And this is sort of what I talk about in the book is the human brain likes to do us them divide yeah. does that naturally and for really sort of simple evolutionary reasons right you see something that moves your brain goes oh shit it's moving it's alive is it like me or is it unlike me and if it's like me maybe i can run in its direction we become friends or we're gonna have sex right and if it's not like me oh shit maybe i better run away because maybe it's gonna eat me or maybe i better chase it down because i have to eat it right so the brain wants to know that and it does these very clear us them sort of categorizations. And the minute we create human animal hybrids, there's a backlash. There's going to be a keep humans pure movement. And so like, those are the things that I'm looking at that freak me out. And like, do I care that they're going to be human animal hybrids? Not so much because I don't, to me, it's, I think of it, it's like, did I care about earrings or tattoos or body modification or scarification? Well, perfect when they have, them, I guess, the of men, uh, humans and, and animals, that'll just be perfect for space, right? Because we're all going to space soon. So we might all be going to space soon. It might be perfect for space. You're probably right. There's probably like a human animal hybrid that's better adapted for living in space than humans. You're actually probably right there. That's a very- You're seeing the whole push. So if you're like jumping on web point three, point oh that's like the trend you know, that's a really technology. good it's a really good sci-fi space is the next but space is the next thing after that man no you're right you just came up with a great idea for a sci-fi novel so if you want to team up i'm sort of into this idea you've been animal hybrids in space so we'll have to get your information contact information bring you back on talk about it and figure out a strategy because that is a great idea because i mean you put all that into space that's where we're going and the, the truth is, Elon, all you're there, they think it's for billionaires, billionaires. Well, it's so I mean, one of the things, if you look in Devil's Dictionary, right, at the core of the plot is the creation of those mega linkages, like huge national wide national parks. And I've got billionaires competing to create mega linkages in, in their own name, which is based on what Elon and Jeff Bezos and all those guys are doing, trying to get us into space. And also, it's not the first time it happened. So back in the 90s, little known fact, Doug Tompkins, who started a spree, took all his money and bought up like basically a huge swatch out of the middle of Chile. They right. completely bisected the country. He, like he owned all of it and he tried to turn it and did. He had to give it back to the Chilean government, but it's a giant national park. So you've got billionaires creating these giant national parks in their own name. But when I was thinking about like what's going to drive kind of this kind of environmental progress forward that I talk about in the book, I was thinking about these guys wanting to go into space and that competition certainly is helping to unlock the space frontier at a really rapid rate. Will you go to space in a few years? Will you travel so, to space? Uh, I, so I don't know if you know this or not, but of the books on technology, I wrote three of them I co-wrote with Peter Diamandis, who founded the X Prize. 
and uh, which was the private race into space that created the very first glass. Uh, I didn't know these things. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I, 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 I interview a lot of people, Stephen. I has so yeah. Peter Diamandis. They NASA had this like ironclad monopoly on space, and Peter was like, "They're doing it wrong. They're never going to do it. So let's have a ten million dollar competition for the first private team that builds a spaceship that can go into space twice in two weeks, which is like a reusable spaceship right. thing NASA couldn't do." And I wrote the first major article on it, which is how I met Peter and how I got interested in the space program and sort of covered and stayed with it. So along the way, because Peter and I have written a bunch of books together and things like that, um, he promised me a ride into space. So the dude still owes me a ride into space and I will absolutely- You better jump on it, but you, you know, we're just going to be able to take an air balloon soon to space in a couple of years. Well, I, you know, I, so I, I want to wait. There's something called the Bigelow Space Hotel, uh, which is an expanding yeah. and So you know about place. these things. And see, aren't you glad I, as a journalist, I know about these things. Or I consider myself an entrepreneur that studies this, but I mean, literally, I know about it because... Because you're a journalist it. and you do your homework, which is what's so great about talking to journalists. They do their homework. Got to do your homework, and 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 I want to get big. I want to find that next big thing. And so, space is going to be a space tourism. All these different things in space. I want to be the first professional wrestler, former pro wrestler, but I want to wrestle in space against the Rock. I'm calling them out now for that. But Ooh. these are the kind of. Oh things. wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! I was going to tell you, I just want to hang out at the Bigelow Space Hotel, have cocktails. No, no, no! You've given me a new reason to go to space. The, the yeah, yeah. What Neil V. Rock in space? Yeah, oh you and me, me, me versus the rock in space and see, get him going. Say, get, he wore my knee pads down south when I was a pro wrestler. And I, I'm minor leagues, never made it to the big time. I'm just legitimate 6'10. But I, like I said, that would be something. Let me, let, let me ask you a question Do you train in zero G for the match? Like that's like that's what ah, I want to know. What kind of training program? Oh, are you yeah. Gonna, so like, what's right? the matter? Like you see in American Ninja Warrior, you don't need to be big to be successful in American Ninja Warrior. So people like The Rock and I that are big guys, will we matter if there's professional wrestling in space? These are things to think about because think about it like, in, uh, uh, you know, when you look at American Ninja Warrior, guys really small are the champions. It's not the yeah, big It's guy. sort of like an inverted Thunderdome concept. Like you ba are basically going to be half bouncing off the cage to fight, right? right? Um, it's interesting. It's got potential. So that's the thing. But so the space thing's exciting. Anybody who wants to jump into that, it's a huge. I'm interested in Web 3.0 as well. That no one's talking about that enough. You got to be innovative in businesses. So as a journalist, what do you think is a another type of thing that's out there in technology that somebody should jump on now? That if you recommended that, I'm we're going all over the place, but I like this because it's a great conversation. Everyone needs to pick up any of Stephen's books because I'm already intrigued by all of it but what do you think because you study technology yeah so uh, what do you think i'm gonna give you i'm gonna go two totally separate directions mm -hmm. but let's let, let me borrow something that's sort of in the theme of the devil's dictionary and sort of in some of my other books I, i'm more on the environmental front so you may or may not know this but um last year i've been as i've been working as an environmentalist for 20 to 30 years now depending on how you're measuring i've been covering a lot of this stuff Last year is the year, first year I saw things get actually real and serious. And what I mean by that, there's two, I'm going to point to two things. The first is there was over a billion or a trillion dollars in venture investment in green energy. 
Now, some of this was triggered by the war, but some of this was, this is just like stuff is ready for prime time. That's first of all, no category investment has ever had a billion or trillion dollars before. So it means green energy is exploding. This is not news from an investment front. Like people are right. We know this, but if you said, what do you want to jump on? Well, so if you're really paying attention, to what's happening on the environmental front. Energy is the, is, is the top level, it's the first thing that has to be solved. Immediately under that is agriculture. Agriculture absolutely has to get solved and you're seeing massive reinvention of agriculture from vertical farming to, and with, with drought, with climate change, with everything we're now facing. Yeah. That is, so already smart investment money is sort of moving in there. We want an example. If you go to Chris Saka with Twitter co-founders, he has a fund, the carbon fund. You could go to his website and read the companies that he's investing in there. Yes. There's all the energy stuff up top, but right below it is every version of cultured beef. So steak from stem cells, pork from stem cells, shellfish from stem, mm-hmm. all that stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is all what's next. That's that's um, going, I think that's going to explode next. The other thing correlated, people don't know this because it's, it's hard to see until I say it out loud and then it'll click. So we saw during COVID a massive investment in both AI and quantum computing, predominantly for drug discovery, right? Mm-hmm. And in all the aspects of healthcare. Now we betting on like AI driven breakthroughs in healthcare, that's not new. People know that. Um, what people don't realize is the exact same technology that gets us healthcare reinvention also gets us food reinvention because mm-hmm. the same technology creates drugs from scratch so that you're going to put into your body that's going to alter your body. It's essentially what food does, right? So the same, it flows into food in really interesting ways. So I think you put those two forces together, we're going to see a lot of change. Mm-hmm agriculture so that's on sort of the environmental tech side what like what's neat and vertical farming is getting wild like people don't pay attention so they don't like oh yes we're going to grow things in indoor greenhouses and they're going to be robots are going to tend them and etc etc yes it's true but we're also learning how to do things like customize the wavelength of light that hits the plant to quadruple crop yields and blah blah so that stuff is going on and it's it's interesting. Um, and it's, so I, I look at agriculture a lot. And then, you know, the other half of the field that I work in, which is peak human performance, right? What's really getting interesting. So I predominantly work on the neurobiology of flow. So flow is the optimal state of consciousness. Where we feel our best and perform our best. Mm-hmm. And I work on what goes on in the brain and the body when we're performing at our best, right? That's why I work with so many great psychologists and neuroscientists. This work is getting really interesting. So I'll give you one example. We have this really cool research partnership with some folks at UC San Francisco and UC okay. Davis, really smart folks from there and Jump VR. So Jump VR, the void was this big virtual reality experience that you could have in Santa Monica, the best in the world. They've closed that down and built the most deadly accurate base jumping simulation in the world. It's a VR simulation but you actually jump and there's haptics involved and okay. you fly a real wingsuit and oh, cool. um, it's neat. And they've got one open in Utah now and they're opening them all over the country, but we've teamed up with them because we're doing all kinds of crazy virtual reality work with flow. It turns out that flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. 
VR is really good at getting them. Like video games are good at flow, but yeah. VR can get it so many more of the triggers. One of the things that happens in flow is we see a massive amplification in learning. Studies run by the U.S. Department of Defense found soldiers in flow can learn 240 to 500% faster than normal. And oh, we wow. see that again and again. There's a lot of neurobiological reasons. We know why it is. But so we are working with Jump to decode um, flow in VR. But the idea is we want to take that and use it for worker retraining because mm -hmm. there's right we need that right? right to move into the the environmental workforce we need the green energy work everything you know and a lot of blue collar jobs as you know are going the way right we have autonomous trucks truck driving is the largest blue collar employer in america and over the next 20 years as the trucks change over it that goes away and we're going to have to literally retrain all those folks and so what vr allows us to do is make high flow virtual so it's fully distributed you don't have to be anywhere you just need a headset uh learning learning environments that we can use for worker retraining you can use the same stuff for school and things like that right. one of our but our focus um i don't i don't the reason i don't go near education is what that means is you're going to get into a curriculum battle with parents and i fuck no no way not going to ever have it i'm not arguing with parents about what we should or should not teach your kid yeah. worker retraining is a lot easier everybody wants to get paid they, here's they a way to learn how to get paid education that'll be last in the technology that someone want to tackle that u.s department of education mess so there yeah. you go yeah that mess so where can people purchase a book and learn more about you Stephen? where can they go uh steven kotler dot com s-t-e-v-e-n-k-o-t-l-e-r.com gets you all everything about me you can get my book barnes noble amazon any and any anywhere they all, they've got all my books and uh uh if you want to know, learn more about flow that's the flow research collective.com and yeah i think i'm out of websites now that's perfect thanks again Stephen. great conversation we went all over the place but it was an interesting conversation but people need to they see the genius brain you have People need to pick up your book to, to really enjoy the technology and what you write about. And the next book is going to be very good. Sir. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll just I'll put you on the list of people we'll reach out to about Nari. You'll like it. Okay, sounds good. All right, Thanks, take care, Stephen. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment.